day. Hey, hey, good morning. How's everyone doing this morning? So good to be back after a couple of weeks away. Missed you guys, watched online, live. I don't think my wife's in here. She doesn't know that. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was great being away. And uh, thanks for letting us get away for a couple of weeks. Uh, today, we're wrapping up a series we've been in for the month of November called The Games We Play, where we've been looking at a different game and using it as a metaphor to learn a, a better way to do life. And today, as you saw in the video, uh, we're doing the game of Sorry, which first hit shelves back in 1930. Hard to believe, and it's a staple, been a staple game ever since. Uh, not sure if you've ever played it. I, I did quite a bit when I was a kid. I'd head over to my buddy's street that lived across the street, and we'd all get together and play this game, and it ended the same way every time in a big fight. Wrestling match, fisticuffs. Uh, now, I, I, now, don't get me wrong. It's a fun game. It's a family game. It even says it on the, on the front of the board. You know, it's a family game. Uh, but, man, things can get intense. Uh, because the way you win is by getting your four game pieces called pawns around the board and into your home slot faster than anyone else on the board. And you can pretty much do anything in your power to thwart their forward progress. And... In order to move, you don't roll dice like most games. This one, you draw cards. And for most of them, they have numbers on them. And whatever the number is, if it's a two, you draw a two, you move two spaces. If it's a three, you move three, and so on and so forth. But there's one other card in there, and it doesn't have a number on it. It's got a word. And the word, of course, is sorry. And when you draw this card, you can cause all kinds of havoc and heartache. And it just... Because, and here's why, when you draw that card, you have the power to take your pawn and move it to anywhere on the board onto your opponent's space and kick them all the way back to the beginning where they got to start over. And when you do that, like you could be two moves from winning the game and your friend draws the sorry card and lands on your spot and says, sorry, and sends you back. And you know they're not sorry, you know? And that's when it starts. That's when the game changes because... Our emotions kick into gear. And what happens, and I'm speaking from personal experience, when you, when you get bumped back to the beginning of the game, there's only one thing on your mind. Payback. You know, you look at your friend, your so-called friend across, and you say, yeah, okay, that's fine. You got your little licks in, but you just wait. You watch your back because I'm coming for you. All right? Hence the tagline of the game. I don't know if you noticed it on the, on the picture, but the sweet the game of sweet revenge. You know, it, it sounds strange hearing the word sweet and revenge in the same sentence, doesn't it? Or does it? <laughs> because let's be honest, okay? We're in church, so we have to be honest. But there's something rather satisfying and sweet in exacting some revenge on someone that's hurt us. Is there not? Right? Just me? Okay, we'll do a series on lying next week. But... Uh, some of the most popular books and movies and plays are all themed around revenge. I mean, movies like The Count of Monte Cristo, Gladiator, Hamlet. Who would forget Taken with Liam Neeson, right? I'll find you and I'll kill you, right? You know what I mean? It's just, it sells. Revenge sells. And revenge plots work because any time somebody hurts us or somebody we love, there is something deep within us. There's a thought, a, a desire, a, a, an instinctive reaction to want to inflict some pain on those that have caused the hurt. 
kind of balance the scales a little bit. And when we see that happen on the screen, we're like, yes, you got what you had coming. And so revenge on the surface, it seems justifiable and right. Like, yeah, you know, it's, it's well within our rights to do that. But here's the thing. Getting our pound of flesh, evening the score by exacting some pain on somebody that's caused us harm, never really promises the resolve that it says it will give us. Instead, and chances are you've experienced this, revenge only does this. It exacerbates, perpetuates, and escalates a situation. Psychologists have actually done studies on this. And the data reveals over and over and over again that when we're hurt, we naturally tend, when we're hurting people back, to hurt them just a little bit more than we were hurt because we want to be sure that they're actually feeling something. But we don't need studies to prove that to us, do we? And if you've ever gone on a, a, a family vacation in a car across Canada, you know this to be true. Especially if you've got kids in the back seat, right? Susie's bored. She pokes Johnny, her brother. And he looks at her and says, what are you doing that for? And he punches her back and then she turns around and slaps him and then on and on it goes, right? You know, this propensity for us to escalate situations as we seek retribution isn't just this modern-day issue that showed up once we had SUVs and station wagons. It's a problem that people have dealt with since, well, pretty much since people have walked the planet. In fact, there's an ancient saying uh, which has profoundly shaped their culture even today. Words found in a number of places in different literature, ancient literature, like the Code of Hammurabi, uh, the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy found in the Bible. And we know the words... It's an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? We're all familiar with those. An eye for an eye became a judicial, judicial principle for generations of ancient tribal people who didn't have a formal legal system to fall back on. They didn't have a bill of rights or constitution or police to enforce any laws. So if somebody hurt you, you just hurt him back twice as bad. You even take him out of the game. And so this law was written, and it was written as a rule to put a limit on the punishment that you could dole out to people. And it was all put in place to prevent our natural human tendency to escalate things, to up the ante. Things are going along fine, and then a couple of thousand years after this law kind of was written in, Jesus comes along, and he flips the whole thing on its head. He says to a bunch of people that know the law, and, he, and he's, he's talking to me. he says to them, he says, you know what? You've been taught an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to try to get even with a person who has done something to you. And this theme continues throughout the biblical narrative in the New Testament. Paul, the guy who wrote most of what is now known as the New Testament, uh, who was mistreated himself, flogged and beaten for his faith. Uh, he said this about forgiveness. Listen to this. He was writing to a bunch of people just like us in a church that were kind of struggling with this. Christians that were in Rome under Roman occupation. And he said this. He says, don't mistreat someone who has mistreated you. And I know what I'm thinking. It's like, well, there's no fun in that. Don't mistreat someone who's mistreated you, but try and earn the respect of others and do your best to live at peace with everyone. And then he finishes with this. Dear friends, don't try to get even rip that page out, right? 
And then in another letter to some other people struggling with this, he says, don't be angry with each other, but forgive each other. If you feel someone has wronged you, forgive them. I'd be so much better if he just said, go get them, right? You know, I think is, of all the things we're asked to do as Christ followers, this is probably the most difficult at all. Because who, when they are hurt, wants to extend forgiveness? Who, who wants to do I, Not me. I'll be honest. I won't presume anything about you. But for me, when I'm hurt, the last thing I want to do, my initial response is not to want to forgive somebody. I'd rather put into practice the whole eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth thing. And here's why. It allows me room to dish out some pain of my own. Just so the other person knows that I've been hurt. Knows how I'm feeling. And it works for me. That whole eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth thing works for me because it provides at least a little bit of, the opportunity, of an opportunity for the scales to be balanced, right? Forgiveness, on the other hand, doesn't seem to allow for that. It takes it off the table. And so it got me to thinking about this whole forgiveness thing and why we find it so difficult to forgive someone. And I think it's safe to say that whenever we're hurt, whenever we are mistreated, there's a sense that the person that hurt us has taken something from us. You could put it this way. Our struggle with forgiveness reveals itself as you owe me. And here's what I mean by that. If you go the extra mile for someone, do something special for them, and they just kind of don't even acknowledge it, there's a part of you that might feel that they owe you a little bit of appreciation. Uh, Maybe at work or school, you're working on a project and you share it with somebody, your idea, like, hey, I think I'm think I'm going to do this. And then they run with it. And then they take all the credit for it. And you're sitting there, you're just like, dude, what are you doing? Like, you owe me, man. That was, that was mine. Or if you get openly or publicly criticized, you feel you're owed an apology. Like, that was over the line. What was that all about? You owe it to me to have been on time. You owe it to me to have had my back. You owe it to me to have supported me. You owe it to me to have kept your promise. You should have been there for me, man. You owe me. You owe me. You owe me. When we're hurt, there's a sense in which we perceive something has been taken from us. And that's why forgiveness is so hard. Because when you experience pain as the result of a wrong that has been done to you, at the core of it, there's a debt. That there's a debt that's owed to you by the person that hurt you. And it's a debt that simply just can't be ignored or written off. And that's why we oftentimes end up looking for ways to even the score, to balance the book, so to speak. And sometimes we do this quite passively. You know, we quietly wish to ourselves some kind of pain in the lives of the person that's hurt us. Pain that we feel is kind of appropriate for the pain that they doled out to us. You know, and maybe we make a little doll that looks like them and we give it to our dog as a chew toy. Sometimes we get more active and we inflict pain through legal means. Take them to court, sue them, coming after you. Or we get public with it and we go around and openly destroy their reputation. We do a smear campaign on Facebook and 
You're seeing all kinds of things in the news about revenge porn and everything like that. And if we see that they're hurting, it might begin to bring a little bit of satisfaction because now, now, they're carrying some of the pain. Man, forgiveness is hard because forgiveness goes against every natural instinct inside of us that longs for payback, for justice to be medied out. And there's a story that illustrates the power of forgiveness and this whole thing, this debt that happens. And and it all started when one day a a close follower of Jesus, a guy named Peter, not the angry bird Peter, but the other Peter that we talk about here a a lot around here. And he came up to Jesus one day and this whole story kicks off. He says, you know, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? That's somebody that's hurt me. And he throws out a number. And the number is seven, which is more than double the amount of times you were required to forgive someone back in Jewish tradition back then. It was three times you had to forgive someone. Fourth time, man, all bets were off. You could just say the elbow's busy, talk to the hand kind of thing. But so Peter figures, oh, hey, Jesus, seven times. And he's expecting the slow clap, right? Jesus like, way to go, Peter, man. Woo! What happens? Jesus says, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven. And, I, you know, I wasn't there, but I think it's pretty safe to say that the room probably went quiet as they whipped out their abacuses and started doing the math, you know, whipping the little beads around. And, and then they come up with the number, 490? It's like, what, really? How does anyone have any self-respect after forgiving somebody that many times? It's just ridiculous. You can't be serious. And almost in response to their confused silence, Jesus does what Jesus did best. When he's trying to reveal and help people understand a deep spiritual truth, he tells a story. And in this story, he he tells that there once was a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with the servants who had borrowed money from him. And in the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. And he couldn't pay, so his master ordered that the man be sold, along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. You know, maybe as that story began, as Jesus started to share this story, the disciples were probably, you know, especially Peter, thinking, I'm feeling a little better about myself because that's what I'm talking about, right? Do the time, you do the crime kind of thing. You want to play, you're going to pay. And the fact that the family was sold into slavery, it was kind of an ancient way of, you know, bankruptcy. Seems really harsh, but that's just how it happened back then. And this king was well within his rights to do what he did. But then Jesus continues and he says, But the man fell down before his master and begged him, Please be patient with me and I will pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him and he released him and forgave his debt. That is a Jesus story, no? Man pleads for mercy. To, I to try and pay a debt that there's no way he could ever pay it. And so he pleads for mercy and the master is moved to compassion. In the verse there it said, he had pity on him. In the, the original language, that word means compassion. And he wipes the balance sheet clean. I mean, that is a true second chance story. And who doesn't love stories like that? But the story wasn't finished. 
Jesus looked at them and he said, But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. And he grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. And his fellow servant fell down before him and and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me and I will pay it. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. Feeling a little bit of that revenge feeling? Well, this story concludes with this man ending up in prison himself, which is exactly where revenge lands us, doesn't it? When we're seeking revenge, locked up and enslaved in relational debt, unable to live debt-free. But this story begins with an important truth, and here's what it is. In order for a debt to be canceled, there is a cost to someone that has to be absorbed. The debt's real. It's, it's not, it doesn't just vanish into thin air. I sure wish my Visa card would do that, but it doesn't. In the last year of high school, I had a, I had a really cool job uh, working with a buddy in a warehouse, working graveyard shift. Uh, and it was awesome because it was just me, my buddy, an empty warehouse, we're the only ones there, and a really, really big forklift, okay? And if you knew me growing up in my teens, you know that's a recipe for disaster if there ever was one. Well, one night we, find, we got all our work done, but we still had a few hours left in our shift at work. And you know what happens when you're tired and bored? Really dumb ideas seem really good. And so we were sitting around and we came up with the idea to take this forklift for a burn around the building, like down the back alleys and everything. And we did. It was an absolute blast. I mean, you're just ripping around, bah, getting this thing up on two wheels. And it, I had so much fun until we put it in a ditch. This thing was huge. I don't know how many tons it weighed. It was, it was tons. And we tried everything. I mean, we tried reverse and wheels would just spin it stuck in this big mud hole. And it's kind of precariously leaning, almost ready to tip over. And so we got, we got my buddy's car and we hooked a rope up to it. And we're backing up and the front bumper's ready to rip off. And we're thinking, well, that's not going to work. And we tr- so we tried and tried. We didn't have any money. We couldn't pot- pay for a tow truck to come or anything. And so we just went, well, there's nothing we can do. We've got to wait until the day shift gets here. And that's what we did. And the day shift came along. And as each guy arrived, and we knew them, <clears throat> they'd get out of their car, and they're walking up to the office, and they'd look at the forklift. They'd look at us, and they'd go, you guys do that? And we'd say, yeah. And they would say, every time they said the same thing, glad it wasn't me. <laughs> and then it happened. In drove the big boss in his big, shiny Cadillac. He just, it was, thing was like four blocks long. And he was a, he was a short, stocky guy, kind of looked like a sergeant, short, cropped hair, and all these chiseled features, and smoked these big stogies all the time. And he hopped out of his car, and he's got his briefcase, and his three-piece suit, and his stogie, and takes a big puff, and he walks up, throws it on the ground, and crushes it into the ground and he looks at me and my buddy and then he looks at the forklift you two my office now he's like oh this is not gonna end well my mind is dripping with fear i mean the the office was like 30 feet away it felt like a mile it took forever to get there and as we're walking it was like that last man walking show you know you're on death row and all the the day shift workers are looking at us with, you know, like pity in their eyes, like, oh, I feel sorry for you guys. It was like a lamb going to slaughter. 
And we get to this, the boss's office, and he opens the door, and we walk in, and before he even closes the door, my buddy and I are we're into our mercy speeches, like, right away. Like, we're sorry, we're sorry, you know, it was dumb, we should have never done it, we'll pay for everything, just don't fire us, please, please. And he's kind of held up his hands like, would you stop already? And he went around his desk and he sat down, he leaned back in his chair and he looked at us and I'm thinking, okay, here it comes. And he says, you know what? I was young once. I get it. Yeah, it was a dumb thing to do, but you know what? I'm going to let you off on this one. Don't worry about it. I'm going to get the, I'll call the tow truck company. We'll get that thing out of there. And if there's any damage, I'll, I'll cover it. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home and get some sleep because you have to work tonight. What? In the story Jesus told, the master is the one who chose to take on the debt, to take the loss. And by forgiving the debt, the master acknowledged that there is a debt. Just like our boss, you know, there was a debt to be paid. There was money to be paid to get that thing out of there. And then he proceeds to, in the story, release his right, his desire to make someone who legitimately owes a debt to pay. And what the master does in this story that Jesus told is actually a foreshadowing of what Jesus did. Did for you, did for me, did for all of us. First, acknowledging that there is a debt to be paid, but then that he is willing to absorb it all. All our debt, every single mistake that we've made or yet to make, every thought, every judgment, every single hurt that we've delivered, every single hurt that we've received, every wound, every secret, all the pain that we remember and don't remember. On the cross, Jesus took it all, paid it all, balanced it all, suffered and died because of it all. And then he took it all and buried it all in the finality of death. And then he rose again alive and free. And it's an event, a sacrifice that brings freedom to us when we are willing to open our eyes and accept the truth and see that it was Jesus' death on that cross where all the world's debts were paid once for all. The cross is a beautiful reminder of God's grace and mercy and forgiveness that is extended and available to each and every one of us. We just simply have to reach out and ask for it. And here's the neat thing. When you come to that place where you can just say, you know what, God, I realize I've made a mess and I've made some mistakes and I've got some debts that I just cannot possibly pay back and I know you're willing to take those on for me. And so would you do that? And he does. And you embrace that love and forgiveness. Something happens. Something happens here at the very core of our being, a shift takes place. A shift where we go from being recipients of God's forgiveness to being people that are able to share and extend that forgiveness to those, especially those that have hurt us. And you know what that is? That's really good news. It's not easy. It's simple, but it's not easy. That's why this whole thing that we talk about here is a journey. This isn't a one and done thing. It can take years to work through forgiveness. But the choice is you forgive or you can just hang on to it and be 
relationally in debt. And I don't know where you find yourself with that this morning, but I just want to let you know that, again, this is not an easy thing, forgiveness. It's a big topic. Uh, but if, if something's been stirred for you, maybe you're in the middle of it right now. Somebody's betrayed you, hurt you somehow, and you just, thoughts of forgiveness are so far down the road that you can't, it's like, I don't even know if it's possible. Wherever you find yourself, we have an awesome team of people right next door in Theater 5 that would be more than willing to sit down with you and just listen. Listen to your story. Pray with you, talk with you, whatever works. And I would encourage you to take advantage of that. I'm just really glad that I get to do this journey with you. I invite you to pray with me. God, you know, we just humbly ask that you help us forgive those that have hurt us emotionally, physically, and mentally, uh, because in and of ourselves, it's, it's almost impossible to do. It's easier to want to have people pay for the hurts they've caused us. But that's not the answer. That doesn't bring the freedom that we're searching for and longing for. That freedom is only found in one place, and that is you. Help us to remember that we too are forgiven. And it's from that reality, that truth, that we are able to extend that forgiveness to others, even if we think they don't deserve it. Because the truth is, none of us deserve it. That's why it's called grace. So God help us, and we pray this in your awesome name. Amen.